You've got to believe that where you're going is possible and what you're doing matters. And if you've got belief in those two things, you're going to have the fuel, you're going to have the horsepower, you're going to have the initiative to exert outrageous effort. But if you don't believe what you're doing matters or you don't believe where you're going is even possible, why on earth would you exert any effort? It's, uh, I mean, it wouldn't be intelligent. So if you're going to be a leader, if you're going to be someone who endures, you've got to guard, cultivate, and expand belief. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. Now, we're stepping into part two of a two-part series on lessons from endurance racing. Um, And it's really all kind of rooted in a thesis statement that we presented in the first part of the series, and that's that when you go further than you thought you could go, you learn lessons you never even knew you could learn. And that's really my driving why behind doing all of the races and challenges and different things that I've done is there's something powerful, and we're going to talk about this more today, about experiential learning. That when you push yourself beyond the limits or just past the edge of your comfort zone, it's amazing how your mind is open in an experiential way to things that you may have understood logically, but there's a greater depth of understanding that comes from doing the thing. And so one of the things that we also presented in the first episode that would be wise for us to return to is that these are my lessons, and these are the ones that I've learned after doing 23 marathons, two Ironman triathlons, and just recently finished my first ever 50 mile ultra marathon. Uh, but you can't internalize these lessons the way that I've internalized these lessons until you do the thing. And also my lessons might not be your lessons. So one of the biggest takeaways that I, I want you to get out of both the previous episode in this series and this one today is my hope is that this serves as an encouragement and a challenge, and a little bit of a nudge, a friendly, or maybe even just quite a bit unfriendly nudge, to get out the door and do something you've never done before. Go a little bit further than what you thought was possible, because there's something that happens whenever you choose to experience it for yourself, and then have the awareness to evaluate, okay, what are the principles that are at play here that transfer to other areas? And this connects to something we've talked about a lot on this podcast previously, especially in our effective coaching series. One of the five qualities of effective coaching that we teach our coaches as we raise them up to be path for growth coaches is that effective coaching is principle-based. What is a principle? It's a concisely worded statement of truth that transcends circumstance. And so what's so cool is one of the principles that we've talked about as it relates to principles, so it's kind of a meta meta principle, is that if there's a pattern there's a principle. And what's so neat is if you engage in activities that push you beyond the boundaries of your comfort zone, you'll start to notice some patterns. And if you have the awareness to say where there's a pattern, there's a principle, then what you will be exposing yourself to is a bunch of principles that what does it literally say? It says they, if it is a principle, it transcends circumstance. So it's going to be transferable to your work 
It's going to be transferable to your family. It's going to be transferable to your personal and spiritual life because it's a principle. It transcends the arena that you're operating in, whether that's running or swimming or biking or something else, right? And and it moves beyond that into the other spheres of your life. So I, I, I tell you that just to say, what would it look like for you to sign up for something or engage with a goal or push yourself to do something that in the back of your head, you're like, I'm not positive this is possible, but it's something that I want to try. And that's a big deal. It's not enough for me to want to want this for you. You have to want this for you. But I I just, I really believe, I've talked to so many people that have taken that step, that have thought about it and taken the step from thinking about it to actually doing it. I have never once met someone that regretted it. I've met people that have even taken the step and even failed in the process of getting to the finish line. But if you ask them, did they regret it? Their answer is no, because some of the greatest learning comes from not getting to the finish line. But then obviously there's great joy and celebration whenever you do get to that finish line. And so what would it look like to push yourself personally? And so we walked through uh, the first half of the principles in part one, and I want to review them real quick. I believe we walked through six of them, and and today we're going to walk through the final seven that have really stood out to me. So number one was that endurance is an exercise in expectation setting. And so if you're going to endure, you need to make sure you're aligning your expectations with reality. Number two, those who endure plan for their plan to fail, have plan A, have plan B, have plan C, and then just expect on race day, all those plans are going to fall apart and you're going to have to figure it out on the go. Number three, effort never sustainably exceeds belief. You've got to believe two things. You've got to believe where you're going is possible, And you've got to believe that what you're doing today matters. And man, you want to talk about transferable. You can transfer that to a wide variety of arenas. But I'm going to say it again because it's so important. You've got to believe that where you're going is possible and what you're doing matters. And if you've got belief in those two things, you're going to have the fuel. You're going to have the horsepower. You're going to have the initiative to exert outrageous effort. But if you don't believe what you're doing matters or you don't believe where you're going is even possible, why on earth would you exert any effort? It's, uh, I mean, it wouldn't be intelligent. So if you're going to be a leader, if you're going to be someone who endures, you've got to guard, cultivate, and expand belief. Number four, the results everyone wants comes from the routines nobody sees. We live in a culture today that celebrates the results way more than we celebrate the routines. But what I will tell you about every excellent individual, leader, business person, even family member that I've ever talked to, they are someone that has learned that there's a paradigm shift from what culture celebrates to what's actually effective. Because it's the routines that nobody sees that creates the results that everybody wants. And so recognize, I kind of think of it as like a a planting metaphor, right? Where does the seed go first to grow, to be really, really strong? The seed goes underground. It goes into the darkness. It goes into where it's mucky and groggy and dirty and wet, right? But out of that, it builds the roots and the structure and the foundation to grow strong and big and broad and tall, It's the routines that nobody sees that creates the results that everyone wants. Number five, coaching makes effort efficient. There was something so powerful for me the first time that I worked with a coach, and I just recently worked with a coach for my ultra marathon as well, because it helps me 
know that the path that I'm on is right. So it, it helps with my belief, right? Because it, it kind of guards that understanding that where I'm going is possible because my coach is telling me, hey, this is possible for you. I've coached other athletes that have done this. I've, I've done this myself, right? So it's possible and I'm telling you that. So sometimes you need other people to believe in you more than you believe in yourself. And, and you need other people to believe in this vision more than you believe in yourself because you're going to borrow some of their belief. And, and that's a powerful strategy, right? And, and you need to make sure you're surrounding yourself with people, men, women, coaches, mentors, pastors, teachers that believe big. And, and not just they believe big in general, they believe big for you because you can borrow some of their belief. Now, you can't run on their belief, right? If you get to race day and the only reason why you keep running is because they said it's possible, that's not going to be enough. But you can borrow some of their belief to engage in the routines to keep going. And in doing so, you can build your own belief. And so it's within that, that that's one of the things that comes from coaching. But also one of the things that coaching has really helped me with that I've learned is it just makes sure like, okay, if I do these things, I'm going to get these results, which especially the more you get outside of the arena of endurance racing to things like business and relationships and life in general, there's so many more variables at play, right? And and I love that idea that wisdom is competence with regard to the realities of life. Because what does principle say? Hard work creates good results. Is that in general true? Absolutely. Are there nuances to that that make smart work different than hard work? Absolutely. And so what does a coach do, right? It makes sure you work smart instead of just working hard. And so I've seen the value of that in my racing and I've applied that value to my business, to my relationships, to my own personal and spiritual health and well-being. Coaching makes effort efficient and make sure that I'm focused on the right activities to get the desired results. Okay, one more from the previous episode. Detachment is a difference maker. And I told the story of how I almost dropped out of a race uh, within the first 400 meters, which is pretty crazy because it was a 140-mile race, right? But I had a little bit of a panic attack. And the only thing that got me out of that panic attack was detaching from my current situation to get above it to observe where I was emotionally and say, what is real? And this is rooted to another truth that we need to understand. Your emotions are not real. Your emotions are how you're responding to reality. And so you've got to be able to detach yourself from your emotions and say, okay, what is the logical way to do this? Now, we don't want you to become an emotionless person because that person becomes an incredibly cold, harsh, unhealthy leader, right? Toxic is the word that I would use. So so you got to retain your emotions. But in the midst of retaining your emotions and being aware of those emotions, you've got to be able to detach from them to say, okay, just because those emotions are real doesn't mean I have to follow them. This connects to Tim Keller idea where he says that religion, the institution of religion, right, will tell you ignore your emotions, right? Don't bring anger to church. Don't bring shame to church. Don't bring messiness to church. Don't bring aggravation to church, right? 
church is supposed to be where you're all put together and and just you look good and you've got this all together. That's the institution of religion says, ignore your emotions. And, and then we sing, swing to the other side of the spectrum. And, and what does culture say? Culture says, follow your emotions, follow your feelings. <laughs> Horrible life strategy, right? <laughs> Not a good life strategy. So, so we don't want to ignore our feelings. We don't want to follow our feelings. What do we do? Well, Tim Keller would argue, and I agree with this because I've seen it play out experientially in my life, you want to pray your emotions. And so how does that connect to this principle? Well, the way that that connects to this principle is that prayer offers a level of detachment because effective prayer, I would argue, invites someone bigger, greater, grander into the picture of your day-to-day reality. And you can say, give me vision give me wisdom, give me an understanding of truth because what I feel isn't always true. And you get to have this conversation with the God of the universe that provides outrageous detachment from the panic and the anxiety of the current situation. Detachment is a difference maker. Okay, so you can see how these principles, concisely worded statements of truth, Um, transcend circumstance, and and they can be applied to a multitude of areas to help make you a more effective person, leader, man, woman, husband, wife, parent. And and so that's the value of this, right? It's, It's doing things that are outside your comfort zone, looking for the patterns, because where there's a pattern, there's a principle, and then saying, okay, I'm going to extract the principle from this situation so that I can use it to reinforce timeless lessons for myself. But then here's what's really cool. So many of you have positions and platforms where you can communicate about these principles in service of others, right? I know some of you host podcasts. I know some of you uh, have team meetings regularly. I know some of you are meeting with your family on a regular basis? And what would it look like for you to be that person that has enough detachment to say, hey, all these things are going on, but I'm not just going to talk to you about what happened today or what happened to me in that race or what happened to me within my workday or what happened within our team over the past quarter. I've done the hard work to extract the principles and that's what I'm going to teach us. And that's where you start to play the role of leader as communicator, but also leader as teacher. And man, I I just think that those are two of the hats that leaders so often neglect because if, if, especially if you're someone that uh, effective communication isn't something that you've worked on a ton and it doesn't come supernaturally to you or effective teaching isn't something that you've ever had exposure to, it can be so easy to say, that's not me. No, teacher, communicator, they're not identities, right? They're skills that can be learned. Now, certainly you can have a propensity to be someone who has talents and gifts that give you a proclivity for teaching and communicating well. But I've seen middle schoolers grow in communication. I've seen CEOs of massive, I mean, like tens of thousands of people grow in the skill of communication. It's possible, but only if you believe it is so. Because what did we already say? Effort never sustainably exceeds belief. And so you got to believe that it's possible for me to grow in this area. And what would it look like for you to start identifying principles and then finding arenas to communicate about them? Wow. And so this gives you the ability to start practicing and engaging in the roles of leader as communicator and leader as teacher. Okay, that was a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's a worthwhile one to go on. So, so we're going to jump into to the final seven now. And, and these final seven, just like the, the first six, are concisely worded 
statements of truth that transcend circumstance. That makes them a principle. And so let's start with number seven. Uh, Compounded strain creates strength. I've already shared with you that I just recently in June ran my first ever 50 mile race in Pine, Colorado. Here's what's funny is uh, my sister and brother-in-law gave me this race as my Christmas gift. <laughs> yeah, they knew that I had basically isolated everything I owned down to a Rubbermaid box. And what I would always say is like, yeah, I just like for gifts, if you're going to get me a gift, I'm super grateful. I just don't want things. I want experiences. And so they, they took me at my word and they bought me a 50 mile race. It was like, holy cow. But think about Think about that as it relates to one of our previous principles. We said effort never sustainably exceeds belief. Sometimes you have to borrow some belief. I mean, what does it do whenever someone buys you something like that? What did they tell me? They said, we believe in you. We think you can do this. At least that's the message that I received. And they later told me that's the message that they were trying to send. And so let's not forget how that principle applies and how sometimes we need to borrow belief from others because, I mean, it's noteworthy that I didn't sign up for this race. They signed up for this race. They believed in me before I believed in myself, but then I was able to go and do the work. So how does this principle compounded strain create strength relate? Here's what's so interesting. I already told you that I I worked with a coach in preparation for this race. And uh, what was really, really interesting is we kept getting closer to the race and certainly the distances started to expand some and I was running a lot during the week, but I anticipated for a 50 mile race, there were gonna be weekends where it's like, okay, you're running 40 miles, right? Because for a marathon, 26.2 miles, there's weekends where you run like 18, 20 miles, something like that. And so I was just anticipating like that was probably going to be the case. And uh, and what was interesting is we started getting closer and closer and closer to the race and he kept giving me my weekly plan and I would run my weekly plan and it was a lot of miles, but we never had that 40 mile day. And here's what's so interesting. Leading up to race day, a 50 mile race, there was never one time where I had ran more than 22 miles. <laughs> now you could look at that and be like, that just seems ridiculous. That seems so dumb. Why, why would you ever do that? It's really interesting. It's the difference between working hard and working smart because I thought the same thing. I was like, what am I doing? Why am I like, we're, we're like three weeks away from this thing and I still haven't done more than 22 miles. What are we doing? And, and the coach who understands the science of this way better than I do, again, someone to lay out the path for you, he explained to me, he said, Alex, I'm more focused on compounded strain than one all-out day of intensity. And he said, what you need to understand is you've been doing several weeks of 60 to 70 miles a week And he said, if you're doing 60 to 70 miles a week, that means when you go for a 15 or 22 mile run, you're not starting on fresh legs. You're starting on legs that are already having to endure because they're fatigued. And he said, the minute we start breaking that 30 mile threshold and we start doing some of these longer distances, I get your desire to want to do that. But he said, your risk for injury dramatically increases and your need for extended recovery time dramatically increases. And so he said, what we're focusing on is compounded strain, the type of strain where you can keep going and keep running every single day with one rest day in between. And, but just every single week, we're 
adding on compounded miles. We're hitting base hits every single time because that's going to be what results in you having the, both the mental durability and the physical endurance to be able to enter this 50-mile race. And, and I was like, okay, I mean, it makes sense, I guess, but we'll see. And on race day, it absolutely worked. I, I realized that, man, I got to mile 35 and, and I looked up and I was like, I still have gas in the tank. I'm, I'm still running and I feel great. And it was because although I hadn't ran 50 miles at one time, I had ran 20 miles starting with my legs fatigued. So I knew what it would feel like and my body knew what it would feel like. Now, now how does this transfer to other areas of life, leadership, and business? Well, I think it highlights the value of daily deposits. And I used to have this idea, especially in my 20s, whenever it came to work, that everything needed to be a grand slam. Every meeting, every interaction, every conversation, right? Everything I did had to be an absolute grand slam. And if it wasn't an absolute grand slam, it was a failure. In some ways, that was equivalent to saying every time I go run, I need to run 50 miles because I'm preparing for 50 miles. And in reality, what is a much more sustainable, healthy, but also realistic strategy? Let's make this a base hit. Let's make this a daily deposit. Let's add value, but it doesn't have to be this massive act of extravagancy because of extravagancy by nature is extra, right? It's going above and beyond. Now, am I saying that we shouldn't do extra quality, excellent work every single time? Absolutely not. But what I'm saying is you need to make sure that you're setting your expectations on, I'm just a person that makes deposits every single day. Because most people don't do every single day. They do extravagance occasionally instead of excellence consistently. And what we need to focus on is just consistent excellence, just daily deposits, just base hits, because that's compounded strain, right? And if you can do that every single day, what are you doing? Well, you're building endurance. You're building mental endurance. You're building relational endurance. You're building spiritual endurance. It's when you go all out on something for a week and a half and everyone cheers for you, but then you have to take three weeks off because you're so worn out or you're sick or you're just down on your yourself, that's not effective. Every single day, compounded strain creates strength. Let's go to number eight. Real rest demands intentionality. Again, part of the value of having a coach for this 50-mile race was that on his schedule that he would give me, he would schedule a day of rest. And, and here's what I learned is that just because we had scheduled a day of rest doesn't mean that I would experience rest. Because especially early on in the training program, I would realize that, man, if I wasn't careful and if I wasn't intentional and deliberate and purposeful in what I was going to do with that day of rest and what my desired outcome of that day of rest would be, I would spend the entire day anxious restless. And here's what's really interesting. I would spend the entire day working, but just working in a different way. And this applies to the way I tried to guard my Sabbath rhythm as well, right? I try to have one day a week that is dedicated to not work, not related in any way to my income or influence. And I just put blockers around saying, I'm not going to focus on work today. And that's been so good for me. But here's what I've learned is just because I schedule rest doesn't mean I experience it. 
And I may not work, but that doesn't mean that I experience rest because here's what rest does. Rest leaves you healthier and stronger and more alive. And so it's possible to schedule a day of rest, but then spend that day of rest either worrying about the week ahead or binging Netflix or eating a bunch of unhealthy food or doing things that aren't actually in your best interest. And you look up and after the day of rest, you're weaker, you're more worrisome, and you're more scattered than before you started. Well, that doesn't mean that the day of rest is bad. That just means that you didn't actually experience rest. And so what have I learned? Well, the ability to maximize a day of rest requires you to be aware, number one, aware of what is this for? To grow closer to God, to grow closer to people, to restore my body, and to engage in the things of life that are readily available to me today, right? That's that's how I I answer that question, but you need to answer that question too. And, And so I need to be aware of what's this day for? If I encounter a day of rest, either in my training plan or maybe my Sabbath day, and sometimes they collide with each other, what is this for? And then committed, like, okay, if it's for those things, then my actions need to align with those desired results. So it would probably be good for me to turn off my phone for the day. It would probably be good for me not to worry about my schedule for the week ahead and to just be absolutely deliberately present with where I am and the people that I'm with. It would probably be really good for me to sit down and be able to have a cheeseburger and not worry about what the calories are in and how it's going to affect my run tomorrow, right? Because there's value in just being able to sit back, relax, and be present and enjoy the gifts that are in front of us right now like a big, fat, juicy cheeseburger. That's if you can't tell, that's one of the things that I really love. But are you committed? Do your actions align with your stated purpose? Because if my desire is to be more alive, more vibrant, restored, healthier at the end of this day than when this day started, is binging Netflix really going to help with that? Now, for some of you, the answer may be yes, but for me, it's like, no, like one episode of something, maybe two, yes. But beyond that, it's like, we're not getting healthier. We're not feeling more alive on the other side of that. I don't binge something all day Sunday and then get to Monday morning and say, oh my gosh, I just feel so restored, right? It's never happened. And so I've got to be committed. Just because it's easy doesn't mean it's rest. Oh, that's a principle. Just because it's easy doesn't mean it's rest. And so it's amazing. Prayer, scripture reading and memorization, intentional conversation with people, those things aren't always easy. But when I get to the other side of them, I feel so much more revitalized. And then deliberate. Just you got to be really purposeful. So again, I want you to hear it again. The ability to maximize a day of rest requires you to be aware, to be committed, and to be deliberate. And what's so crazy is I got to the point where I would start doing that, right? And I, and I would have this routine for my Sabbath as I was training for this 50-mile race. And it would involve maybe going for a walk in the morning, listening to worship music and praying before church and then going to church and just enjoying it. And if people were going to lunch after church, just going with them to lunch and just having a great time and ordering a cheeseburger if I wanted to order a cheeseburger. And then getting to the afternoon and kind of asking the question, what would be the most revitalizing right now? Would it be spending more time with people or would it be reading or would it be going for a run sometimes? Because sometimes I'd want to do that just for fun, right? Because I really do love 
love to run, but I, I wouldn't turn on my GPS or anything like that. Or maybe I want to go for a walk or lift some weights or, or maybe I want to take a nap, right? You put everything on the table and you say, okay, the desired result is to be healthier, more alive, more excited about what God is doing in my life and connected to God at the end of today as in today. And, and so what's going to make that happen? And, and what's so cool is I would enter into Monday and a lot of times Monday and Tuesday would be, I mean, some of the best runs I had in training. And it's like, well, no wonder, dude, you actually experienced rest. And so what would it look like for you to not only schedule rest, but to commit to experiencing it? And that actually connects to point number nine, because lesson number nine is that experiential learning is irreplaceable. Now, we've already kind of highlighted this, so we're not going to park too long on it. But here's what I want you to hear. Most of the principles that I'm sharing with you on this episode and on the previous one in this series, I, I probably could have had a logical understanding of them before I did any of these races, right? You could look at me without the 23 marathons and two triathlon and I mean, all that stuff, right? You could look at me before all of that. And I probably could have talked to you about all this, but there would have been less umph to it because I hadn't yet experienced it. And this is really, really important. You may understand something, but there's always a deeper level of understanding that comes with experience. And so there's two things associated with that that are takeaways for me. Number one is it gives me such a great deal of respect for people that are older than me, right? Because by nature, they're older than me. So without a shadow of a doubt, they've experienced more than I have. And, and so when I get to interact with people that are older than me, and what's so cool is a bunch of them are our customers, which I'm just so grateful for, but it gives me an outrageous level of respect and reverence because quite frankly, they've seen some stuff and done some stuff that I haven't yet seen and done. And then it makes me into pers a person that's outrageously curious because man, they've engaged in experiential learning that I can draw from. And, and there's some umph in what they've learned that honestly, in certain arenas, it's just not possible for me to have yet. And so what's so cool is if we remember this principle, it will give us a level of humility around people that are older than us that I believe not only is necessary if you want to grow, but also right. It's the right thing because it aligns with truth. So, so, so that's number one. But then number two, it gives me the motivation to continuously stretch the boundaries of trying new things. Because if I'm always experiencing what I've already experienced, then I'm only going to reinforce what I've already learned. And it's good to reinforce what we've learned. There's certainly value to that. But if we're ever going to have new learning and new insight at a higher degree and a higher level, well, then we need to be engaging in new experiences. And so the question I would ask you out of this is, what are the things that you are doing that are new and different? And I would argue, regardless of age, regardless of stage, regardless of what you're going through right now, you should be able to answer that question. Because that's at the core of what it means to grow. What are the things that you're doing right now that are new and different? I, I uh, was on an office hours call. That's the calls that we do twice a week with members of our community. It's so neat. I just get to show up as an attendee now because our other coaches run these calls. And it's such a gift to show up and just to be a business owner that attends 
these calls that are casual yet intentional conversation with other business owners. And it was so cool to hear that one of our customers, his name is Tim. Tim is someone that's been with us from the beginning and he's just such an inspiration to me. I, I just love the guy to death because of his attitude, because of his commitment to growth, because just this never ending drive to get better. Eager to grow is literally one of his company core values. And I, I just think it's so spot on because he's the leader of that company and he exemplifies it. And he just shared a principle that he was applying to his company, or I think it was actually a tool that he was applying to his company. And he shared it as advice to someone else. And then he shared that where he learned about this tool was his canoeing club. <laughs> I was like, like rewind, right? Like canoeing club. Is that like code for something? Or are you actually in a club that does canoeing? Because this is a radically different version of Tim than the one I knew the last time we talked. And he said, oh yeah, a handful of weeks ago, I, I started canoeing with this group of people because I just thought it would be awesome. And he said, the furthest I've gone now is 15 miles. We're doing it multiple times a week. He had all these pictures that he showed me. And, and what's so cool is he's learning stuff from that that he's bringing into his business. And not only that, he's sharing it with other people's business on office hours. And it was just such a great example of this that experiential learning is irreplaceable. And so if you want to keep learning, you've got to keep experiencing. Go do things that are new and different. But here's another example of where this played out. You know, I think one of the topics that a lot of times comes into play with business owners and business leaders lately, especially, is the topic of confidence. And I think the reason why it's coming to bear a lot right now is because there's so much uncertainty in the future ahead and and people are all kind of asking the question either consciously or subconsciously, do I have what it takes? And so we want to grow in confidence. And, and I want to share with you how I grew in confidence as a runner. The first time that I ever ran a half marathon, it was because someone that my dad worked with wasn't going to run his. And so he said, hey, would your son want the bib? And I remember thinking to myself, I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if I could do it. And my, my dad said, well, what harm does it take to try? And so I just went for it. I think prior to that time, I had only ran like six and a half miles or something like that. And I said, I don't know if I can do it, but I'm going to try. And man, it was so hard. I'll never forget how hard it was. I can literally remember mile 10 and I can remember the song that was on whenever I walked a little bit in that half marathon. And I just remember thinking, this is so hard, but I did it. And so I, I saw some examples of, I don't know if I could do this, but I did it. And then the thought that I had immediately at the finish line of that half marathon was, I don't know how anyone could ever do double that. That's crazy to me. And then a couple of years passed and then I, I can't even remember how signing up for the first marathon came to play, but I didn't know if it was possible prior to the race, signed up, ended up doing it. And then now I've done 23, right? And I remember like halfway through kind of running marathons, right? So probably after my 13th, I remember thinking like, man, those people that do Ironmans are just insane, right? Like I, how on earth could you ever swim two and a half miles and bike 112 miles before doing what I just did? Like that's just wild. I could never do that. And then someone volunteered because again, sometimes you need someone to believe in you before you believe in yourself. Someone volunteered that they said, hey, if you do the training, if you invest the time, I'll pay for your first Ironman. And so I was like, well, now I have to do it. And so I didn't know if I could. I had no idea if I could. In fact, I probably would have said, I don't think I can. And then I did it. 
And the same thing applies to this 50-mile race. I absolutely had fear and anxiety about, will this be possible? Can I do this? And so what has that string of half marathon, marathon, Ironman, ultra marathon proven to me? It's proven to me that you don't feel confident and then take action. You take action and then because you took action, you feel confident. And you better believe that that applies to your business. You better believe that that applies to you as a leader. You better believe that that applies to your life. If you're waiting to feel confident, you will be waiting for the rest of your life. It's time to take action in the process of taking action, not because you know you're going to be able to do it, but because it's the right thing to do in the process of taking action, you'll become more confident because you'll become the type of person that it's like, whether you can do it or not is kind of irrelevant because you're doing it. And that's what confidence looks like. And so I share that with you just to, again, say that if you want to keep learning, you've got to keep experiencing. You've got to keep pushing the boundaries and the limits of what you're capable of. And does that mean you have to follow my path? Absolutely not. But choose a path and and you say, well, is this path right? I don't know if it's right. I don't know if it's right. Just do something. Do something. Okay. (laughs) Let's move on to number 10. Uh, voluntary struggle is part of healthy growth. You know, it's been described that there's a difference between struggle that is taken on voluntarily and struggle that is thrust upon you. If you told someone, hey, you've got to go for 140 miles and you have to do it because I told you so, they, I mean, (laughs) most likely, unless they're a very unique type of person, they'd be like, no way, no way I'm doing that. So how do we explain that some people pay thousands of dollars to go and do just that? Because they're volunteering for it. And if you can volunteer for struggle and reframe it as something that although it may be hard, hard can be really good because you're choosing to engage with it and because you have a reason why, which will connect to our last principle here today, then man, you can do a lot. And and so the question I would ask you here is, What is the voluntary struggle that you're engaging in right now? Maybe it's your business. Maybe it's something with your spouse. Maybe it's something that you're doing physically. Maybe it's something that you're doing spiritually. But if you can't answer that question, you are becoming soft. Because atrophy is reality. Degradation is reality. And so what are you doing to introduce a voluntary struggle into your life right now? And, and this is why I like races is because they're the most like visceral, tangible form of voluntary struggle. It's like, I'm going to do something that's really hard that I'm literally signing up for and registering for, and I'm paying for it. Right. And you look up at like mile whatever, and you say, why on earth am I paying for this? And then you say, okay, I've got to have a bigger reason. Because the t-shirt isn't a big enough reason. The medal isn't a big enough reason. So I've got to have a reason because it's going to make me into more of the type of person that can do hard things because voluntary struggle is a part of healthy growth. But then what I will also tell you is that if you engage, especially physically with things that are really hard, it's such a joy if you train in the morning to get to the end of your training session and say, man, this day can throw just about anything at me and the hardest part of my day is already done. Some of you can resonate with that. I know that. And there's such value to that because it gives you a level of tenacity to say, man, I've already done stuff way harder than this. Whatever this thing is that's on my to-do list or whatever this challenge is in this meeting, like we can handle this. Voluntary struggle is a part of healthy growth. Okay, we've got three more. The next one is about struggle as well. Shared struggle creates community. 
This is so bizarre. Think about this for a second. If I wear shorts, which I basically do like all the time, <laughs> uh, and you see me wearing shorts, you'll notice that there's something on my right calf. And if you look at my right calf, I've got the Iron Man logo with the Texas flag in it. Now, think about how bizarre that is for a second. I am a paying customer of Iron Man. I've paid, uh, now that I've done a handful of their half Ironmans and two full Ironmans, a couple thousand dollars to participate in their races. So I'm a paying customer. I paid them good money and I've engaged in their event. And on the backside of engaging in their event, I make the decision to put the logo of their brand permanently on my body. <laughs> I didn't come to this realization how bizarre that is till years after I got the tattoo. But I mean, think about how crazy that is, right? And, and how on earth do they get people to do that? That's just wild, right? And I think it's related to this principle. Shared struggle creates community. Because if you ask me, like, are you glad that you got the tattoo? I would tell you yes. And if you ask me why, I would tell you because of the conversations it creates with other people that have done one. And it's so cool. I have all these conversations because see, people see my tattoo and they say, oh, you probably did Iron Man Texas, huh? And I say, yeah. And I say, have you done any? And they talk about it. Or someone says, I'm thinking about doing one. And then I get to encourage them. Or people talk to me. I met to people that have literally done like 27 Iron Mans, right? And it's like, man, you need like 27 tattoos. I've never seen someone do that though. But, but it's like, it creates this sense of community because we have shared experience. And that's what everyone wants, right? They want to be able to talk about it. And they want to be able to engage in the shared struggle, the struggle that we both had. And so this is just mind-blowing, right? And, and so if you're setting out to live a life or lead a workplace that is just easy, don't expect any community. This is why sometimes like a small group model or things like that, I, I, I think there's so much value to getting together, right? But I would just ask the question, okay, sometimes what are we doing? Because there's things that if we do them together, they force us to engage in struggle. And when we engage in that struggle together, there's something that happens that is just like a bonding agent that says we are now inseparable. And there's power to that that I've never seen manufactured elsewhere. This is why, I mean, we did the Fiery Gizzard, which is a 13-mile hike at our at our last uh, Path for Growth experience. We also did a workout with my friend Nick Carrier, which was maybe even more shared struggle because it was like 90 degrees outside. But then also a group of us did Pike's Peak at the one previous. And it was like you get to the end of that day, and it was one day, and it's like the people that were in the group that did that thing, it was like they were meshed. They had this bond and, and like a year and a half later, people are still talking about Pike's Peak. Why? Because it's shared struggle. Shared struggle creates community. So if you want community, if you want to be deeply connected with people, you should say, what's something that we could struggle with together, struggle on together, struggle towards together. Shared struggle creates community. Two more, patience pays. This is one that I, I should probably come back and listen to this over and over and over again because I agree patience is a virtue. It's just so often one that I don't have, right? But, but what are the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And, and so patience pays, I'll tell you where I really saw this come to fruition. I've been doing these races for years now, and it was my most recent marathon. It was the Houston Marathon, which was a Christmas gift from my parents that I saw this come to fruition. 
my dad ran the half and I got to run the full. It's just such an incredible day. My dad loves that race. If you want to know where I get all the crazy from to do all this stuff, it's directly from him, right? He's done, I mean, that guy's like a legacy at the Houston Marathon. He's done so many of them. It's not even funny. And man, he just keeps plugging away at the Houston Houston half as well. It's just so cool. It's such an inspiration in that way. And 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 so, but this race... So I went into it and I was in the middle of five at five, which some of you know what that is. Uh, but that's five miles at 5 a.m., six days a week, every day in the month of January. And that's something that I've done now for six years. And it gives me a start to my, gives me a start to my year, which is just so valuable for me. But I was in the middle of that. And so Monday through Saturday, I'd ran five miles at 5 a.m. And then on Sunday, I was supposed to run a marathon instead of having a rest day, which was like, ah, oh, dang. And so I went into it thinking like, I need to start slow. I don't know how this is going to go. And I was really anticipating, like, this is not going to be my best race. Like, I knew I was going to be able to finish, or at least I felt like I was going to be able to finish. But I was like, this is not going to be my best race. I'm not looking to be a world beater. I'm just going to take it easy. And so as a result, more than any other time, I was really committed to, dude, you are not going to, like, go be a world beater for the first 10 miles. Like, you're just going to take it really easy. And... That's what I did. Now, there have been other times in previous races, the 22 races previous to this, where I'd said that with a lesser degree of commitment, where I would say, man, I really should start slow. But then the music would play, I'd get so pumped up, and I'd start slower than what I could, but still way too fast, especially if you look at where I ended. And so this time, I, I started significantly slower than what I could. I think I was running like 830 miles or something like that, which if I go for like a six-mile run, it's like I'd be doing... 740s maybe or something like that so significantly slower and it felt slow and my body honestly kind of felt a little bit clunky at the beginning and I was like okay well we'll just see how this goes and so I was running and it was wild as I was going I started to feel better and better and and I hit mile five and I was like okay I'm feeling pretty good I'll speed this up just a little bit and and I just kept speeding up and then it was around mile nine or ten I was like I might have the ability to do this as a negative split race, which which what a negative split race is, is that every mile is faster than the one before it. And so your slowest mile is mile one, your fastest mile is the last mile. And that's something that a lot of like really elite runners do because it shows that they have the patience and that they're resting on the fact that patience pays off because then you'll get that jolt at the end. And I've always heard about that, but I've always thought that was either mythical, number one, like how could you literally feel better at the end? That just sounds ridiculous to me. And so I was like, I don't know that I buy that. But then uh, number two, I, I thought it was for other people, not for me. And I was like, okay, maybe that, like other people may be able to do that. I can't do that. My body doesn't work that way. But it was in this case, partially not because of my own intentionality, but just because of circumstance that started going. And, and then I thought of something that it's like, okay, well, what do they always say for the elite runners? They say that the real race starts at mile 20. And I was like, what if I ran this race in such a way that I still had gas in the tank at mile 20 and just had fun with the last six miles? And so I kept running that way. And it was crazy. I literally started feeling better as the race went on. And I'll never forget hitting mile 20 and saying, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm starting. And what's so cool is, I mean, you start to see more spectators around mile 20 and everyone around you is like petering out or starting to walk at mile 20. And I'm like starting to get better. And 
that last six miles of that marathon was the fastest last six I've ever run. The last mile, I want to say I ran it in like 640 or something like that. I was one minute from my PR and I had trained way less for this race and I ended up running a negative split. Here's the principle. Patience pays. It took so much to say, I'm going to go slower than I can right now so that I have gas in the tank for when it matters. Do you have the guts to be able to do that? Because what I learned is that that requires a degree of faith. It requires a degree of faith to run really slow at mile five whenever everyone's passing you and going super fast. It requires a degree of faith to say, okay, I'm doing this because I'm resting on a belief about the future that's two and a half hours from now. And for, I mean, for years, literally years, almost a decade, I didn't have the patience to do that. And I didn't have the guts to do that. I didn't have the courage to try it. This was the first time I ever tried it. And here's why. Initially, patience is not celebrated because you're moving slow. For the first 10 miles, it was like, man, this guy, like, okay, he's he's not a great runner. He's just kind of chugging along. People are passing him, all this stuff, right? And, and so it feels counterintuitive, right? It feels like I shouldn't be doing this because people aren't clapping for patience in the beginning, right? But then what's crazy is although initially it's not celebrated, in the end, it ends up becoming more celebrated, because for the last six miles, I don't think I got passed by one person. I was passing everyone, right? Because I still had gas in the tank and everyone else was falling apart. And then that last mile, it's like, I mean, there were so many spectators because it's the last mile of the Houston Marathon, which was is one of the largest marathons in the country. And people were going bonkers, right? Because I'm running like all out. And it was so cool. And, and so patience is initially not celebrated, but it ends up being more celebrated. And also, it avoids burnout. And, and here's the big one that is transferable. It makes you more able to serve others whenever it gets hard. So if you're weak when things get really hard for everyone, all you're going to be able to focus on is your own survival. What's so cool about the last six miles of this race is I was able to encourage others. <laughs> yes, I was passing them, but I was able to pat them on the back and be like, good job, keep going, don't stop, right? Now, if I was only focused on just trying to finish myself, I wouldn't be able to do that. This absolutely applies to business. It absolutely applies to leadership. If you invest in healthy growth, the type of growth that's sustainable, the type of growth that says, I'm going to be patient, and trust in the process. Well, then when things get hard, you're going to have gas in the tank to be able to serve others. You're going to be operating on overflow. And those miles may be some of your best. I'm not talking financially, although they could be. What I'm talking about is they may be some of your best because you're going to be radically more equipped to be able to serve people exceptionally well. Patience pays. Okay, let's move to the final one. Remembering the reason is hard but necessary. In just about every race I've done, there comes a time where you end up miserable, right? And, and, and it's really, really hard. And the thing that has clicked for me that I think has made me fall in love with these long distances is when I hit that miserable moment that's really just very difficult, I have to remember this moment right now is literally why I did this, <laughs> Right, Because you don't sign up for hard things under the expectation that they're easy. You sign up for the hard thing 
because it's hard, because you know that miserable moment is coming and you want to test yourself. And so when it comes, what I have to remind myself of is this is literally why I'm doing this. All the other stuff that I've done up to this point, whether it's mile 22 or 132 or mile 48, right? All that other stuff that led up to this was just what it took to get me to this point. But this is the point. And when you remember that this is literally why I did it, I think you're more equipped and excited about engaging with it because it connects to that idea of voluntary struggle. And so you got to remember your why, right? It's that I, I want to be the type of person that can do hard things. And if I want to be that type of person, there's going to be times where it's hard. And, and that's not good or bad. That just is. And I would argue that it's right. Why on earth should we ever live in a world where you become someone that can do hard things, but you never have to? And so the only way that you get there is by doing it. And, and so you got to be able to remind yourself, this is literally why I'm doing this. And that gives you a level of value and presence in the moment that I just don't think you can get anywhere else. But here's the other thing that connects to this idea of purpose, remembering the reason. Well, the reason why I do these races, it's because the lessons and it's because I like the person that I become. I like the leader that I become whenever I do these things. I like the way I'm more equipped to serve people. I love the energy level that I have around people, whether it's my family or my friends. I like being the type of person that can encourage others to do hard things. Those are my reasons, right? And I think in running, I get closer to God. So I get to glorify the God of the universe by moving my body. Body. So those are my reasons. Now, here's what's interesting. I've gotten to parts before where I'm training really hard for a race. And because I'm training so hard, I become not great to be around. I have low energy. I, I don't really do a good job of encouraging people. I'm not connecting my running to my faith. And, and I just become a lesser version of myself. And if that ever happens, if I ever don't like the person I'm becoming in training, I, I have a choice. I should either change the person that I'm becoming and change my training to become that, right? Or my attitude or my mindset or my emotions or my beliefs, right? I need to change something or I need to stop. Because if, if the reason why I'm doing it is to be better equipped to serve people and love and glorify God. And in the process of training for the thing, I become less able to love people and glorify God. Why would I keep doing it? I should stop. I don't care if it's embarrassing. I don't care if uh, I, you know, I've told a lot of people about this race. It's not worth it because it's in no way any more connected to the purpose. And so I've never had to do that, thankfully. I've never literally had to stop and cancel something. But I have had to re readjust and say, like, dude, you're becoming less of the reason why you signed up for this in the first place. Don't let the race become the thing. The race is the strategy to achieve the vision right? The race is the way that we become more equipped to do hard things, serve people, and love God. The race is not the thing. And so if the race ever becomes the thing, then I will justify treating people bad, being low energy, being lacking the ability to be encouraging, and being disconnected from God. And I'll say, it's because I'm selling out for this race, backwards, screwed up. And so remembering the reason is hard. It's really hard, but it's necessary. And it requires you to be introspective and look in the mirror. So remember, what do we say at the very beginning? When you go further than you thought you could go, you learn lessons you never even knew you could learn. And so I'm going to ask you again, 
what's the voluntary struggle that you are currently engaging in? If you can answer that question, pay attention to the principles. Because if there's a pattern, there's a principle. And there's things embedded in this season. There's things embedded in this struggle that's voluntary that you could be learning from and you could be using what you're learning to serve others. And that's such a powerful thing, whether with the written word or with conversation or with public speaking or podcasts, it's a powerful thing to share principles. But if you don't have an answer to the voluntary struggle, you're becoming soft and I'm not okay with you becoming soft. Growth always occurs in the presence of discomfort and growth and sustained comfort, they never coexist, right? So in many ways, we, we call it path for growth. We could call it path for discomfort. And, and so it's time to sign up for something. It's time to do something that's difficult or hard, not because you know you can, but because you know it's right. And if you sign up, and engage with something that you know is right, but it's going to be hard. I just think that there's, I, I don't think, I know there's so much good that will come to you within that. But I think more than the good coming to you, the good that's going to come through you because of that. Other people will benefit because you chose to engage with what was hard but necessary. So what's the thing that you're a little bit afraid of? What's the thing that you doubt yourself in? What's the thing that's been in the back of your mind that you said, what if, but you've never actually taken the step? Maybe now's the time. Y'all, if this was valuable, it was filled with principles, and principles are something that we share in written form every single Wednesday in an email we call Worth It Wednesday. If you want to get on that email list, it's some of my favorite writing that I get to do every single week. You can sign up at pathforgrowth.com. Every week, we'll send you a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. You can read it in under three minutes. And we also send a short video that explains the principle and those are a blast to record. And I really appreciate y'all watching and sharing those videos too. That's been really fun lately. Uh, y'all know this. I, I'm rooting for you. Our whole team is rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.